Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 23. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Leviticus 23. If you don't have a Bible, there are a number of them out on the tables just outside the door. You should feel free to grab one from there. Before we read Leviticus 23, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we do uh, gather, gather at your throne, uh, gather at the mercy seat, gather to hear your word, gather to draw near to you, dra- gather to receive your grace through the gospel, through Jesus, by the Spirit. So, Father, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit now, that you would give us ears to hear, uh, minds to understand, hearts to receive, that you would draw us close to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture reading is Leviticus 23, beginning with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. You shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain and offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priests. 
And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap uh, your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim at times of holy convocation, for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That, there, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. Well, for years, uh, people have been talking about uh, this a notion of quality time. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. It's often used in contrast to quantity time. Uh, Gary Chapman wrote a book a few years ago called The Five Love Languages. Uh, I actually have some reservations about the book. You can ask me about that later. Uh, but the basic assertion is good and helpful, and that is that different people receive and express love in different ways. And Chapman lists five, five different ways. Words of affirmation, receiving gifts, acts of service, physical touch, and quality time. And uh, while reading Chapman's book, I was struck that these are all ways that we receive and show love to God as well. 
we receive God's gracious words of acceptance in the gospel. Uh, We long to hear God's affirmation, well done, good and faithful servant. We praise God with our lips, telling how great God is, rejoicing in his mighty deeds and his mercy. Those are all words of affirmation in Gary's uh, language. We certainly receive gifts from our Father, life, creation, redemption, God's providential care. We offer gifts to our Father, our lives, our money, our possessions. We receive love from our Father in great acts of service, the work of the whole triune God in our redemption. Even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we show love to our Father by serving him with our whole lives. Our work, our play, our worship, our evangelism is all meant to be in service to our God. Physical touch is a tricky one. But Jesus in his earthly life, you may remember, he went around demonstrating love and acceptance by touching people. It's mentioned again and again in the Gospels. He touched the leper. He touched the eyes of the blind. He allowed the prostitute to touch his feet and anoint them with perfume. But of course, Jesus has ascended to the Father, and he sent his spirit to live inside of us. That's intimate, yet not physical. But it's in the church that where four times Paul encourages us to greet one another with a holy kiss. The point is we are to demonstrate the love of the Father by our even physical embrace of one another. We're a little uncomfortable with that language in our culture of holy kiss, but but you get the point. The point is there is a physical element to demonstrating love that shouldn't be ignored. And that leaves us, though, with quality time. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, And our outline, which uh, is completely wrong in the bulletin uh, because I changed it since then, so I apologize. But our outline is, if you want to write it down uh, or reorder them or number them or whatever you want to do. But uh, our outline, we're going to talk about the Lord's Day first. I don't think that's first in the bulletin. I can't remember. The Lord's Day, then get-togethers, date nights, days off, and Memorial Days. So the Lord's Day, get-togethers, date nights, days off, and Memorial Days. However many points that is, five, I think. So the Lord's Day, we're going to start there. Our passage begins with the Sabbath law. You see it in verse 3. It says, six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now, I want to actually jump right in to uh, the, the, the controversial question here about the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. And the question is, uh, for many Christians, is does, does the New Testament church have to keep the Sabbath commandment? Is this something that's relevant for us, or is it something that was unique to Israel? And I start here uh, because our answer to this question will affect the way we hear the rest of the passage. The Sabbath command here in Leviticus 23 echoes the command, you may know, that's found in Exodus 20 as the fourth of the Ten Commandments. 
And many would say that because the Sabbath is a part of the Ten Commandments, it remains a part of the law that governs the church, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. We, we wouldn't get rid of any of the other Ten Commandments, and so why would we get rid of this one? But other people would say, well, because it's given to Israel at Sinai, it's a part of sort of that, that uh, Israel's life in the land, and so it's passed away. And yet the truth is that the, the seventh day... The holiness of the seventh day didn't begin at Sinai. Israel actually kept a, a Sabbath while collecting manna in the wilderness before getting the law at Sinai. And that's because God had set the seventh day apart at creation. Genesis 2 says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. See, the holiness of the seventh day didn't begin at Sinai. It, it was not uniquely a part of the laws of Israel. Similar to the sanctity of life, which we find in the command against murder, the sanctity of the Sabbath is rooted in creation. Well, some people would say, well, okay, that may be true, but Jesus abolished the Sabbath. And Jesus was known for causing trouble on the Sabbath, wasn't he? I and mean, you read through the Gospels, and he, uh, the Pharisees and, and other religious leaders are constantly accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath or ignoring the Sabbath. And in fact, there's one story, which we read earlier, where the disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are upset with Jesus for allowing them to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus' conclusion, you may remember, is that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And that people sometimes conclude from Jesus' words that, uh, well, therefore, we don't need to keep the Sabbath, uh, the Sabbath command anymore. Because if the Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath, well, then, then I can choose whether to keep it. It's not, it's not about me having to keep this law. It's just, you know, it was made for me, and I can kind of take it or leave it as I see fit. And, they would add, if Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, that must mean that he fulfills it, and therefore, I don't need to worry about obeying this law. Uh, it, it may or may not surprise you, I don't know, that I think that's actually kind of sloppy reasoning. Uh, the fact that we were not made for the day, but the day was made for us, doesn't mean that we don't need it. In fact, maybe it means that we do need it because God gave it to us as a gift. Maybe we actually need that rest. That's why God commanded it. And the fact that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath doesn't necessarily imply that the day is abolished, in fact, it may apply that Jesus is laying claim to this day, right? He is the Lord of the Sabbath, which means it is the Lord's day. And if it's the Lord's day, that's the very definition of holiness, isn't it? Right? Holiness is when something uniquely belongs to God. And Jesus is saying, this day belongs to me. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. It's the Lord's day. And so Jesus lays claim to the Sabbath day. John actually picks this up in the book of Revelation. You may know uh, the vision in that book is given to John, he says, on the Lord's day. And uh, the early church, as far as I understand, unanimously understood that to be talking about Sunday. Now that's interesting because the Sabbath, of course, was Saturday. So why Sunday? Well, Sunday was the day of Christ's resurrection was the day that Jesus rose from the dead and got out of the grave. The original Sabbath day was the capstone of creation. But in the new covenant, the, the Lord's day is the celebration of the new creation, which began in Christ. 
It's the celebration of God's redemption through Jesus. And so the old Sabbath looked back, looked back to creation, but the Lord's Day looks back to the resurrection of Christ, which was the first fruits of the new creation. And so theologians argue that the fourth commandment, while it has been transformed in light of the gospel, from the last day of the week to the first day of the week, from looking back to creation to looking back to redemption and the beginning of the new creation in Christ, it's still binding on God's people. It's still, uh, just like the commandments uh, not to murder and not to steal and not to commit adultery, the, com the command to remember the Sabbath is still binding on God's people. Now, you have to remember, of course, that our standing before God is not in how well we keep this law. Uh, we stand in Christ. His blood takes away our sin. His righteousness clothes us in glory before the Father. We never keep any law in order to be right with God. But Christ did die for us in order that we would obey and begin to live a new life. Remember, uh, Jesus calls us to be people who love God and love our neighbor. He says that's a summary of the whole law. And remembering the Lord's Day then is a part of loving our God. And I want to unfold that a little. A little of what the Lord's Day is all about by looking at Leviticus 23. Some of you maybe are nervous at the moment. moment. Don't be nervous. We'll, uh, we'll just, just listen as we talk through Leviticus 23. Here's what the Lord's Day is about. So first, we'll talk about get-togethers. Uh, there really are so many things that we could say about the Lord's Day, about the Sabbath, uh, and I'm, I'm, I have to limit it uh, for time's sake so we don't pass out from the heat, so I don't pass out from the heat. Uh, and I'm just going to look at three phrases, three phrases that we find in Leviticus 23 before we kind of do a quick overview of the festivals as a whole. So three phrases in Leviticus 23. The first phrase that I want you to notice is repeated again and again. It's the phrase holy convocation. Holy convocation. Uh, you find it multiple times in uh, Leviticus 23, beginning with verse 2, right? You see it right there, that you shall proclaim a holy convocation. And... Um, a convocation literally means to be called together. It's a, a, actually a really fitting English word uh, we've, because we've seen this Hebrew word uh, before in another form in Leviticus. Uh, we saw it in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Leviticus says, The Lord called to Moses. And that word called is uh, a, a different form of the word here, convocation. And what that means is, it, though it may not feel like it, Leviticus as a whole has been one long call to worship. God begins calling out to Moses in the beginning, and now he is explaining what this calling is all about, these holy convocations. Through Leviticus, God has been preparing his people to gather together before him. It's like God gathering his kitties in his lap. I know that's not what Leviticus feels like, but that's true, right? That's what it's about. God is gathering his people. God desires to meet with us, to commune with us. And so God starts out early on in Leviticus telling us what we're going to do when we get together. He says, you're going to give yourself to me. That's the, the burnt offering and the tribute offering, right? Us giving ourselves up to our Father. And you can think about the intimacy, right, of a wedding night, of giving two people giving themselves to one another. God's saying, look, you're going to give yourself to me as we gather together. We're going to have a meal together. That's the peace offering. 
And don't worry, right? Just, just come as you are. Don't, don't worry about getting cleaned up first because I'm going to clean you up when you get here. That's the purification offering, right? God is going to cleanse us as we gather before him. He does say that we should be ready to make things right with our brothers and sisters when we get here. That's the reparation offering, you may remember, because God doesn't want us squabbling when we're together. And so this is what we're going to do, God says. This is what we're going to do when we get together. It's, it's about you giving yourself to me as we fellowship together around the table, as I cleanse you from sin in a community marked by reconciliation. And then God says in Leviticus 11 through 22, something to the effect of, look, you're my kids, and I don't want you acting like those other kids down the street. Right? The, the purity laws and the holiness laws. The way you think about sex and, and death, even the food you eat and the clothes you wear should be different from the people around you. You've been set apart. You're my kids, and I'm calling you to get together. Now, Leviticus is, is not the only place that we hear God's call, right? You, you find it all throughout the scriptures, Isaiah 45. God says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. John 7, 37, Jesus stands up uh, during one of the feasts and cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God desires to spend time with his people, and so God calls us to come, to come, to be saved, to be filled, to find rest. Have you heard that call? Have you heard God's call to come to him, to draw near to him in the gospel and through Jesus? Have you heard that call and have you responded by trusting in Christ and drawing near to the Father through him? Well, the Sabbath day and the feast days are called holy convocations. God is calling his people to gather together before him. Next point, date nights. Uh, there's a second phrase to notice in Leviticus 23. Again, it's repeated multiple times. It's the phrase appointed feasts. It's also there right in verse 2. The Lord uh, says, you shall proclaim these things as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. And um, the Sabbath and the festivals both are called appointed feasts. And it's, it's one word in Hebrew. It means appointment or appointed time. Um, it could mean meeting. Right? Like you schedule a meeting, or even we might say in, in sort of our colloquial language, we might say a date. Right? God, is, God is saying, these are my dates. These are the times we're going to get together. Same word, again, is found in Leviticus 1.1, really interestingly. Uh, Leviticus 1.1, again, says, the Lord called, convocation, Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now, if you were to hazard a guess, what is the tent of meeting for? It's for meeting, right? It's for meeting with God. And Leviticus 23 is, is, is almost a climax in Leviticus 24. We'll get to that next week. But God is preparing to meet with his people. But you don't meet with someone unless you agree first on a place, the tent of meeting, and then on a time, the Sabbath and the festivals. That's the way meeting together works. That's the way dating works. God wanted to maintain his relationship with his people through regularly meeting together. 
And we're used to this kind of thing, right? I mean, this is, we, we do this all the time, right? We're used to, you know, a guy calling up a girl, asking her out on a date, and he says, let's meet at this time and this place. And we know this is important for relationships because we often hear people talk about dating their spouse, right? Have you ever heard that phrase, dating their spouse? And what that means is taking intentional time to be alone with their spouse and do things together, just the two of you doesn't have to be anything spectacular. It's just about being together, talking together, sharing life together, uh, sharing your thoughts, your feelings, your heart with one another. Sometimes it means being bored together, but that's okay because you're together, right? And that's what really matters. And when this kind of thing doesn't happen in, in marriage, the spouse might feel neglected, right? Or the couple grows apart or the two feel distant. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel distant from God? Do you ever feel like your Heavenly Father is aloof? Right? He, he's out there somewhere doing something, but, but you don't feel a connection anymore. Maybe it's because you don't spend time with Him. Any relationship right, where you're, where you're not together on a, on a regular basis is going to fall apart over time. God gave Israel a weekly and an annual date nights, so to speak. That's how you grow close to someone. You can call it quality time, call it quantity time, whatever you want to call it, right? It's about being with another person. We see this in Jesus' life, right? We're told in the Gospels that it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Because despite the analogy of, of a date night, right, our relationship to God is not just about me and Jesus. There's a communal aspect to it, isn't there? God shows his love to us through his people. And that was obvious when we talked about physical touch as, as a love language earlier, but, but why would this be? Why would it be that God shows his love through his people, that he, he, he fellowships with us through his people? Well, Jesus said something similar, didn't he? He said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. See, we, corporately, the church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's actually an emphasis in the New Testament on the corporate nature of that New Testament temple. When Paul says, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you, those are both plural yous. Right? Paul is saying, y'all are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in y'all. Or if you're from Philly, use guys. And what that means is when we gather with God's people, we gather in God's presence. It may not feel spectacular. You know, most nights, Deborah and I uh, just sit on the couch exhausted from the day. But we're together. And when we gather with God's people, we gather in God's presence. It's a holy convocation, an appointed feast, a, a, a date night with God, or morning, as the case may be. Okay, days off. Next point. The last key phrase uh, that we want to look at in Leviticus 23 is uh, found in verse 7, and it says, you shall not do any ordinary work. Now, actually, nine times in this chapter, we're told not to do work, nine times. And it's so tempting for us uh, to immediately associate with the Lord's Day a kind of list of rules of what we can and cannot do. And, and to some people, it, that, that instantly feels uh, burdensome, legalistic not working, we, we start to squirm, like, and we start to ask the question, like, what can't I do, right? That's the question that comes to our mind. 
And there is a, a whole lot that we could say about rest. And uh, I'm not going to say it all. You'll, you're, you'll be happy to know. But uh, there's a lot that we could say about rest and about the importance of a day of rest. But I just want to stick at the moment to what pertains to, to, to this present discussion. In our culture today, we are losing the ability to be with people. Now, I, I don't know if this is new or not. Maybe it's not new. I'm not sure. But, but there are definitely certain technological advances which have kind of encouraged this, spurred it on. Uh, it, it's hard to sit with people for an hour and not look at your phone, right? Just try it. For some of us, it would be impossible. For others of you, you know, you, you, you're good. You're, you're able not to do that. That's wonderful. Praise God for you. Um, teach me how to do that. Um, we don't know how to be present. When you're having a conversation with someone, right, how does it make you feel when they suddenly, sometimes without warning, stop, look at their phone, and just stare while you wait? Sometimes you were in mid-sentence, and you don't know whether to keep going, to stop talking. Are they listening? Do they care? What's going on here? You have no idea. Sometimes they were in mid-sentence, and they just stop and stare. You don't know what's going on. Now, I, again, I, I struggle here as well, but what, what, what's going on? We've lost the ability to connect with people. We've lost it because we think, consciously or unconsciously, that if I, deal, if I don't deal with this right now, whatever it is that's going on, I'm going to miss out on life. We think that, that social media and texting and Instagram and Snapchat will bring us closer to people, but it actually ends up hindering face-to-face -face relationships. Now, I'm not saying that social media is intrinsically bad or can't be used well. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it is difficult for it not to be more disruptive than productive in relationships. And really, it's just one more symptom of our inability to connect with people. If we didn't have those things, we'd be distracted in other ways. There are times in the Gospels where Jesus has to get away from the social media of his day, the crowds, right? I mean, that's it. That, that's, that's about all the technology they had. Mark 1.35. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went to a desolate place. And what did he do there? He prayed. He, he went to spend time with his father. He hung up the car keys. He put down his phone. He turned off the TV. He closed his computer. And he went to a desolate place where he had no cell phone service so that he could spend undistracted time with his father. Again, do you ever feel distant from God? What if, what if you spent quality time together every week and you gathered with his people and you heard his word and received his grace and then you hung out afterwards and you ate with one another and you encouraged one another and you embraced one another, maybe even gave a holy kiss or two where appropriate. And you did this every week, not expecting anything spectacular to happen, but, but just to be together. And then you went home and you hung up your car keys and you put down your phone and you turned off your TV and you closed the computer and you set aside the books and the studies and the homework and you went to a desolate place so that you could spend undistracted time with your father, just to be with him. And you did this every week. Now you might be thinking, I'd go crazy. I don't know what I'd do. I'd be bored out of my mind. Okay, well, first of all, I'm not saying go sit alone on a mountain for six days in silence. That's not what I'm saying. 
Now, that could be great, but, but I hear you, okay? But, but let's say, right, think, think, think of a different context. Let's say you're counseling a young man who's interested in a young girl, and you counsel him to ask her out for coffee. And what's his first response? I don't know where to go. I don't know what to talk about. I don't know what to wear. Okay, calm down, right? Chill out. It's all right. You don't have to figure all these things out at once. Of course, it's odd at first. The Bible is an odd book. If you're going to go and spend time with God, opening his word and reading and praying, that, that's going to take getting used to. Sometimes we don't know what to say in prayer. And being silent before God, I mean, three minutes would drive most of us nuts if we're not used to it. But if you ask that young man, after he goes out, after he asks the girl out, and, and they go out, and they get married, and they have kids, and they grow old, and they live together, and you ask him, was it worth it? Right? Was the being nervous on the first date and the not knowing what to say and the awkward silences and the feeling stupid and all the rest, was it worth it? The answer is yes, of course. Of course it's worth it. And if that's true on a purely human level, how much more is that true with our Heavenly Father? God calls us to set everything aside, to gather in His holy presence with His holy people on His holy day, and even sometimes to go to a desolate place and just be alone and quiet before our God. Well, that leaves one more thing to talk about, which is the festivals. We'll go quickly through them, I promise. The memorial days. Our, our passage is actually divided into two main sections. There's the introduction in verses 1 through 4, which includes the Sabbath command. And then there's the rest of the chapter in verses 5 through 44, which lists the holy days. And Jewish scholars have often noticed a difference between the Sabbath and the feast days. The Sabbath was not a specific day, like April 25th, but an ongoing rhythm every seventh day. The feast days were proclaimed holy, uh, but Jewish scholars teach that the Sabbath just is holy, apart from any human proclamation whatsoever, because God had already sanctified it on the seventh day. The feast days were calculated by the phase of the moon, but there was nothing in the world that determines what day is the Sabbath. The Sabbath, declaring that one day in seven would be holy, is an alien imposition on time. Right? Th think about it. By declaring one day in seven holy, God is, God is placing his mark on creation. The holy is stamped on the profane. Right? From now on, there's a holy rhythm to life. One day in seven, set apart to the Father. And, and, and think about it. This is, there is no necessary reason to have a seven-day week. In fact, most cultures in the ancient world did not have a seven-day week, except two, Babylon and the Jews. Now, Abraham happens to have been from Babylon, from Ur of the Chaldeans. And I would be so bold as to suggest that the only reason we have a seven-day week is because God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Could it not be that Abraham and his extended family in Babylon held to a seven-day week because they remembered on some level that God blessed that day and made it holy? And that the me that memory was a part of Babylonian culture, including Abraham, before God called him out of Ur. See, God imposed on creation this notion of holy time, one day in seven. The feast days, the festivals, then reflect that. You may notice, and it, sometimes it's hard to count as you work through this chapter, 
but there are seven appointed feasts, there are seven holy convocations, there are seven days on which you shall do no ordinary work. And those seven feasts typically occur on days that are multiples of seven, or multiples of seven plus one, like eight and fifteen and fifty. The festivals were a reflection of the Sabbath, writ large in Israel's yearly and larger cycle. And what was the point of these festivals? Well, they were memorial days, right? They were days to remember and to celebrate something that God had done in history. They were days to remember God's work of bringing his people out of Egypt and establishing them in the land. They were days to renew their relationship to him in the Day of Atonement. This was about the maintenance of a relationship by remembering where you've been, by remembering what God had done for you. And, and to be sure, in some ways, this is similar to our American holidays that we celebrate. But th there's no better analogy that, that I can find than when you have a couple that's been married for years and years and decades and decades. And they get together to renew their wedding vows on the same day in which they were married. It's something more than mere remembrance. Right? It, it's a reaffirmation. It's an entering into this again to continue together in the relationship. That's what these feast days were about. Entering back into God's salvation, recommitting to the Father, hearing His uh, grace once again. We get to the New Testament and we see Jesus celebrating many of the festivals in the Gospels. And we also, it's also clear that Jesus fulfills these festivals in, in a number of ways. I'll just list a few of them, right? Some of the more obvious ones, Jesus is our Passover lamb. It's the, fest, the, the feast of Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb who died so that the angel of God's wrath would pass over us. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, the first fruits of the harvest at the end of the world. The gift of the Spirit on Pentecost is our feast of weeks where God pours out his Spirit to draw men and women to himself. We look forward to fulfillment as well. The, the Feast of Trumpets is the day when the last trumpet will sound and God's kingdom will arrive in fullness. Even the Day of Atonement, uh, atonement has a forward-looking aspect, right? There, there will be a day when all sin will finally be removed from our midst, when the camp will be clean, when there will be no more sin in the church, no more sin in the land. The Feast of the Ingathering or the Feast of Booths will be when we celebrate that our pilgrimage, this, this long camping trip called life, will have come to an end. And we will be home. And so these feasts not only look back to God's past work in history, but they map out for us the history of redemption, beginning with the exodus from sin accomplished at the cross, followed by the resurrection and the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost, moving toward the great day of consummation, the last trumpet, the new creation, when we will finally and forever be home. That's what the feasts are all about. Now, it's clear from Scripture, right? Jesus fulfills the festivals. They're a shadow of which he was the reality, Colossians 1.17, 2.17 tells us. We're not required then, according to the New Testament, to continue to celebrate these feasts, though it certainly wouldn't be wrong if you did that with Christ's fulfillment in mind. And yet, analogous to the Old Testament festivals, the church historically, even parts of the Reformed Church, have often celebrated what are called the five evangelical feasts, Christmas and Good Friday and Easter and Ascension and Pentecost. 
really for the same reasons that the feasts were celebrated in the Old Testament. This is a way of continuing to remember and celebrate God's redemptive work in history, even as we look forward to the completion of that work in the new creation. Now, it's funny, a lot of people in the church, I think, would argue for the celebration of Christmas and Easter as religious holidays, uh, but if you begin to talk to them about the Sabbath or the Lord's Day, that people begin to get uncomfortable. But the Lord's Day has been set apart by God to remember and celebrate what God has done in history. And that's a part of what we're doing right now, right? Remembering and celebrating what God has accomplished in time and space in the resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week. And so we gather on the first day of the week to celebrate what God has done. It's that work of Christ that enables fellowship with the Father, right? Apart from Christ's work, we could not come. It's the proclamation of that good news that calls us to draw near to the Father through Jesus. And the Lord's Day is then set aside for just that, drawing near to the Father through Christ in response to the gospel call. Now, just like with marriage, it's not that you don't fellowship with God throughout the week. I mean, Jesus says he's with us always. That doesn't just mean on one day, but every day. God works in and through and with us throughout the week. But to say that I spend time with my wife at family dinner and getting the boys ready for bed and paying the bills together is not the same thing as date night. It's not the same thing as intentional, concentrated time where you focus on one another. If you want to be close to God, start by spending time with Him. God has set a day apart to meet with His people, the Lord's Day. And of course you're busy. But we all have a choice to make. Do I, do I want to grow closer to my Father? Do I want to get something else done? Now, that's not a guilt trip, right? It's just the reality of relationships. If you want to grow in a relationship, you have to spend time together. The God of heaven has set a time and a place, right, with his people on the Lord's Day, in a desolate place. I know it's not easy, right? I mean, if you have kids, it's really hard. If you're in school, have a job or friends or a spouse, right, which probably means if you're a living, breathing human being, uh, there are pressures, right? There are expectations. I get it. My problem is, is that my heart doesn't really believe that meeting with the Father is going to be that great. I, I don't want it. There's no immediate payoff. Of course, that's the same in any relationship, isn't it? Depth takes time. Again, relationships sometimes are boring, but you're with people just to be with them, just to grow together. Our Father has appointed a time for us to drop everything, gather together, and meet with Him. And to get to that point where, where to get to the point where you really want that, we have to want to be with our Father. We have to, to know that stuff out there will not give us life, it will not satisfy, that I can't work myself full, I can't work myself accepted. But Christ died to bear sin, to give me his righteousness, so that I would be accepted with the Father. And we have to know that the Father's acceptance in the cross, that's what's going to satisfy. In the cross, we find the love and the acceptance and the embrace that our hearts long for. Draw near to the Father and satisfy your soul. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that uh, you would... Give us a glimpse of your love, of your great redemptive deeds, that they would bring joy to our soul, that we would rejoice in them, that we would delight in your work for us in the cross. And that as a result, we would draw near, 
that we would want to be closer to our Father who loves us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.